We are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Today we are focusing on Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 40. Acts 16 describes the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, The journey began with Paul and Silas visiting the churches that had been started in the first missionary journey. He wanted to do what he could to strengthen them in their faith. Well, while in Lystra, uh, Paul recruited Timothy to join he and Silas on this journey. Later in Troas, we know that Luke also joined the mission team. And as, the, and as they continued to move further west into the, throughout the, in the Roman Empire, they ran into a problem. And the problem was the Lord. I mean, he intervened and kept them from going several places that they had planned and intended, wanted to go. We're told that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of the Lord in Asia. And then as they were trying to go in more north into the region of Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them to do that. They had been going from city to city, region to region, to share the gospel, serving the, the risen and reigning Christ and seeing his kingdom expanded. And as they continued in submission to him, the Lord made it clear he wanted them to go to a particular region at this point. He wanted them to actually move from Asia into Europe. While they were in Troas, uh, a vision was given to Paul, and in this vision a man from Macedonia was standing and appealing and saying, come, come to Macedonia and help us. Well, Paul and the mission team concluded that they should go to Philippi, which was one of the leading cities in Macedonia, And the rest of Acts 16 is about their time in Philippi. Interesting to note, um, just wanted to share a brief interlude here, that there's a connection with this passage as far as our nation's history is concerned, specifically concerning the Massachusetts Bay Colony. That colony began 10 years after the Pilgrims, so that's about 1630. And the authorization for the colony was written by King Charles I in 1628. Here's what it said. That the colony be so religiously peaceable and civilly governed as their good life and orderly conversation may win and excite the natives of that country to the knowledge and obedience of the only true God and Savior of mankind, which is the principal end of the colony. The following year, Uh, In connection with the colony, they designed a special uh, seal, and the centerpiece of that seal was a Native American Indian standing and saying, come over and help us. So a key purpose for that colony was sharing the gospel with the Indians. A leader in that effort was John Elliott. Uh, Quite a few Indians, I would say dozens, even into the hundreds, believed through his ministry. They started what was called praying villages. He translated the Bible into the Algonquian language so they could have the scriptures in their own language. Just found that interesting that that particular passage was actually used as far as in one of the colonies as they were uh, settling. So back to Acts 16. The first person to respond to the gospel in Philippi was Lydia. She was a seller of purple dye and fabric, and she was part of a prayer group that met outside the city by a river. Well, as Paul spoke, the Lord opened her heart to believe the gospel. Paul was ultimately then able to share with the members of her household as well, and they all believed and were baptized, and it was in Lydia's house that the mission team stayed while they were in Philippi. Then they had an encounter with a young slave girl. 
This girl was possessed by a spirit of divination. And it was through this demonic spirit that she was able to work as a fortune teller, and all the profits from what she made went to her master's. She began following the mission team and loudly proclaiming this. She would say, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. This went on for multiple days. Paul was patient at first, but became frustrated, turned to the slave girl finally, and cast the demon out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. So this was Satan's way of trying to deceive the people about the gospel message Paul and the others were sharing. He was causing a true statement to come out of the mouth of a pagan, demon-possessed girl. And this would cause the people to misunderstand the message of salvation and really associate it with one of their pagan uh, little g-gods. So the girl's masters were furious. The girl was no longer useful to them uh, when the demon was gone. So they directed their rage then to Paul and Silas, physically dragged them to the marketplace, place where not only things were bought and sold, but also where judicial matters were addressed. They were able to whip the crowd up into a frenzy. The magistrates then uh, beat them with rods, had uh, had the jailer put them in stocks and place them in the inner prison. So let's pick up then at chapter, in chapter 16, verse 23, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter to pick up with that story. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, and he and all his household. And he brought them into his house, and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when day came, The chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come out themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrate. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. I think one of the themes that you see in these verses is really a theme of faith from several different angles. You see the faith of Paul and Silas and how they respond to their imprisonment. You see the faith of the jailer and his family as they respond to the gospel. 
And then you see Paul's faith in the Lord when he courageously stood up to the civil magistrates and called them out for their unrighteous behavior. So, first thing we see in these verses is that there is a need for an active faith in the Lord when we are being treated in unrighteous ways, being treated in unrighteous ways. Paul and Silas's actions in the prison are really quite remarkable. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. The prisoners were listening to them. Now, before we consider specifically what they did, let's remind ourselves of what they went through that day, just preceding this midnight of this particular day. For days, they had been walking through the streets of Philippi and were being followed by a demon-possessed girl who was constantly hounding them, getting in the way of ministry. After casting the demon out of her, they were then physically attacked by the men who owned her. They were literally dragged into the marketplace. A crowd of people gathered around them who became very hostile because of the slave master's accusations. At that point, the civil magistrates got involved, but they did not protect Paul and Silas. They didn't calm everyone down for, to have a reasonable discussion about what was going on. Instead, they took their cues from the angry slave owners and the hostile crowd. And so they stripped Paul and Silas of their robes, had them beaten with rods. Then they ordered the jailer to lock them up in the back part of the jail, possibly something like a dungeon. He fastened their feet into wooden stocks and then left them there. Quite a day. I would assume they were there for a number of hours before we see what happened here in verse 25. I'm recovering from a physically painful beating. I would imagine their injuries were probably quite extensive. What kind of things might be going through your mind if you were sitting there in a dark inner prison with your arms chained and your feet bound in stocks? What kind of things might be going through your mind? Maybe something like this isn't fair. We didn't do anything wrong. How can they get away with doing this? Lord, why didn't you intervene in some way? I wonder how Timothy and Luke are doing. How's this going to impact the new believers? What's going to happen next? I thought these people were asking for help. I mean, these are all really very logical questions to be thinking through. There have been times in your life and in mine where you've probably been treated in unrighteous ways. It may not be physical abuse. It could be. But it's something that is still painful because of the unrighteousness of other people's actions. Well, Paul and Silas give us a very helpful example on how to act in faith when you've been treated in unrighteous ways. First, in faith, Paul and Silas took their concerns to the Lord in prayer. Took their concerns to the Lord in prayer. Verse 25 tells us around midnight, Paul and Silas began to pray. The very fact that they would pray in itself is an act of faith. In spite of terrible trials, they believed they could go to the Lord and he would hear their prayers. They trusted him to care for them, to answer their prayers in ways that were wise and appropriate. And he's the one who would determine that. Surely they prayed for themselves. I would think they probably prayed for Timothy and Luke, new Philippian believers. They probably prayed for the Lord to deliver them, to grant them the strength to, uh, to endure this trial. 
They probably prayed for the jailer, for the, for the other prisoners that were there. I mean, they were committed to bringing the gospel to the city of Philippi. But we also see that they did more than pray. Next point is, in faith, Paul and Silas sang, the word they were supposed to be sang, sang praises to God. So they not only prayed, but they were also singing hymns of praise. Now, it's one thing to pray um, in times that are deeply painful and discouraging. Singing oftentimes has an expression, an aspect of joy connected with it. So that kind of moves it into a little bit different level. Of course, part of that depends on what you're singing. But we read that they, they were singing hymns of praise. Now, the early church had some hymns that they sang in worship. Paul included one of them in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. In those verses, they focus on Jesus Christ taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. They speak of him humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. They speak of God highly exalting him and bestowing on him the name which is above every name. Those things would surely be encouraging to sing about in their situation. It would put their troubling circumstances into the context of all that Jesus had done on their behalf. It would remind them, no matter how things looked, no matter what the circumstances were, that Jesus Christ was actively reigning as Lord. So that could be what they sang. I think it's really more likely that they were probably singing a psalm or maybe several psalms. The word translated him in verse 25 can also refer to a psalm. There are many psalms that would have been very appropriate for their situation. One in particular that I saw suggested, and there's a number of psalms that people have suggested that could have fit, is Psalm 140, which Jesse read earlier at the beginning of the service. So I wanted to read through that psalm and see how it might apply to Paul and Silas. First three verses of Psalm 140. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. They continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. So in these opening verses, David honestly acknowledges to God how bad his situation is. He's dealing with evil men. These men are violent. They devise evil in their hearts. They stir up war. They stir up conflict. Their very speech is poisonous and deadly. And then in light of that harsh reality, verses 4 and 5, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to trip up my feet. The proud have hidden a trap for me and cords. They have spread a net from the, by the wayside. They have set snares for me. Keep in mind here, David was an accomplished warrior with men to help him fight battles, but he still knows he needs the Lord to be the one to rescue him. Paul and Silas could echo that prayer for the Lord to keep them, preserve them from violent men. And then the psalm actually moves more to praise in verses 6 through 8. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear, O Lord, to the voice of my supplications. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not promote his evil device that they not be exalted. And as he does throughout the psalm, and he does this often in other psalms, David speaks of the Lord as Jehovah, the sovereign, covenant-making, covenant-keeping 
eternal God. He says, you are my God. He asked Jehovah to give ear to his supplications, and he is confident that he will. He speaks of the Lord as the strength of his salvation. He also asks that the evil devices of the enemies not be allowed to succeed. And then he further prays for God to bring judgment on these evil men. And again, you can see how that could fit with Paul and Silas, verses 9 to 11. As for the head of those who, as for the head of those who surround me, may the mischief of their lips cover them. May burning coals fall upon them. May they be cast into the fire, into deep pits from which they cannot arise. May a slanderer not be established in the earth. May evil hunt the violent man speedily. So in these verses, David prays in very direct ways for God's intervention against these enemies. He prays that the evil words they have spoken will prove to be self-destructive to them. He prays that God would bring on them the judgment they deserve. He prays that those who do such evil things would not be permanently established. As you probably know, this is in, these are imprecatory prayers. <laughs> they feel uncomfortable to us because we don't use them very often. And of course, I'm just guessing, really, as to what Paul and Silas might have prayed. But if they prayed a psalm, which I think is likely, and if they prayed and sung a, sung a psalm, that dealt especially with unrighteous treatment, which again I think is probably likely, then something like this would be included in their psalm of praise to God. I think there's a place for using these kinds of kinds of psalms. This is not for the purpose of getting revenge, but we're praying to see God honored. That's the purpose. That's the ultimate goal behind these prayers. Now look at how the psalmist ends. 12 and 13, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name. The upright will dwell in your presence. So the psalmist is certain that God has heard his prayer. He will come to his aid. So his faith is strengthened then when he comes to the end of this psalm. There's a quote on your outline from Charles Spurgeon on what was accomplished in praying and singing this particular psalm. He says, how high have we climbed in Psalm 140 from being hunted by the evil man to dwelling in the divine presence? So doth faith, so doth faith upraise the saint from the lowest depths to heights of peaceful repose. Paul and Silas's prayers and their songs of praise are really just such a great model for us when we think about walking by faith in times when we are treated in unrighteous ways by others. I believe as they prayed, as they sang, they were at peace with God. They were, they, were in, they, they were trusting him. But the Lord had some answers to their prayers that were truly astounding. So look at verses 25 and 26 back in Acts 16. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So we have a, this is an example to us that in faith we recognize that God's purposes, God's purposes go far beyond what we might expect. Paul and Silas were trusting in the Lord in their situation, which is amazing in itself. 
because of what all they'd gone through just that very day. I really don't think they had any idea about what was about to happen. Suddenly, obviously without any warning, there was an earthquake. But this is a very interesting kind of earthquake. This was not an earthquake that brought destruction. This was an earthquake that brought freedom and deliverance. It was an earthquake that came in answer to prayers for deliverance. Notice what the earthquake did. It says the foundations of the prison were shaken, but not so as to destroy the building. All the doors of the prison were opened. All the chains and all the prisoners were unfastened. That's a very unusual earthquake. And it was sent by the Lord for very specific purposes in answer to prayers. When we pray in faith, we can trust the Lord to come to our aid. We don't know what that's going to look like. The way he answers is up to him, of course. But we can be sure that his purposes, even in times of trials, go far beyond what we might expect about the situation that we're having to deal with. And, of course, as we continue with these verses in Acts, we see that God had some truly life-changing purposes in mind. So our second main point, we see that in faith, we understand that God uses the gospel to bring about life transformation. In particular here, the jailer and his family are about to see their lives dramatically changed and eternally changed. Look at verses 27 to 30. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword as about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer was in the front part of the prison. Uh, the earthquake woke him up. And when he saw the doors to the prison cells were standing open, he was certain that the prisoners had escaped. Now, it's very possible this, that we talked about Philippi being a, a Roman colony. Very possible that the jailer was himself maybe a Roman soldier. But even if he wasn't, he would at least be subject to the Roman way of discipline. And so the fact that the prisoners he was responsible for had escaped meant that he had failed in his duty as the jailer. And so the lawful and honorable thing for him to do would be to kill himself. And that's what he drew his sword to do. Paul was obviously very aware of this situation, and, of what, and he could not see the jailer from where he was, but he understood what was happening. I mean, the prayers and songs that he and Silas had prayed were not only for their deliverance, but also to be able to further share the gospel in Philippi. And he recognized right away what would be going on with the jailer in light of the circumstances. So he cried out very loudly from the back part of the jail, Do not harm yourself. We're all here. We're all here. So not only Paul and Silas, but the other prisoners had remained in prison as well, even though their doors had opened and their chains had fallen off. We noted earlier, you noted earlier in the verses that the prisoners were listening as Paul and Silas were praying, especially probably apparently as they were singing to the Lord. 
and what seems going, what I'm assuming is taking place here is that the prisoners would recognize and put together that the earthquake was an answer to those prayers. So they probably stayed put out of fear because the God of Paul and Silas had clearly intervened, so they just stayed where they were. That's what I think is probably going on there and why they didn't leave. Well, the jailer calls for candles, torches, whatever, so he could go back and see. He's full of fear. He falls down before Paul and Silas. Now, part of the explanation for that fear, for that trembling, could be the earthquake that had just happened. But based on his comment to Paul and Silas, I think his fear had more to do with conviction of sin. He had seen what the Lord had done for these men. He is the one who had chained them. He is the one who put them in prison on orders, but still he's the one who did it. So he was trembling at what he had done to these servants of God. So that leads us to this next point. The gospel was the hope for the jailer who was in great fear. The gospel was his hope, was hope for the jailer. He asked Paul and Silas what he should do to be saved. I don't think he was talking about being saved from being disciplined by his superiors. He was under conviction from the Lord. He realized he was a sinful man. The earthquake was a demonstration to him of the wrath of God against sinners. And it's very possible that he had heard some of the things that Paul and Silas had been preaching in other contexts and was now full of fear as he stood accountable before God. The missionaries first gave a pretty simple answer. Uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. One thing, this is not a call, this is not a call to what is sometimes described as historical faith. Historical faith just says something like, I acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God. I acknowledge you know, he, he's the Messiah. Yes, I, I believe that's true. It's not that kind of faith. I mean, that's included. I mean, yet that's kind of the foundation of this other faith that we're looking at. But this was a saving faith that they were talking about. This is, this is the idea that, that there, there's a belief of a full reliance on Christ and on Christ alone for forgiveness, for eternal life, for salvation. This was a call to submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord of his life. Jesus is the only one who could save him from sin. He's the only one who could save him from the judgment of God, from the eternal damnation that he deserved. But it's important to note that Paul and Silas didn't leave this gospel presentation with that one statement. In verse 32, we see that they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And it seems to me at this point that it's hard to tell exactly, but it seems that, that the jailer apparently took Paul and Silas to his home. He gathered his household together, and Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to them. So what would that include? Well, I think first he would have gone into some detail about who the one true God was. I mean, there were all kinds of idols and pagan gods. Surely he spent some time talking about who the one true God is, speaking of him as holy, righteous, the just creator of everything. Second, I think he would speak more about the sinfulness of man. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't refer to the Ten Commandments to, to make God's righteous standard clear to them. 
and also to expose their sin as those commandments were spoken of. Third thing I think he would do is he would, he would speak more clearly about Jesus as being the Son of God who came to earth as a man. They would speak of his righteous life, of his sacrificial death on the cross. They would speak of how he endured the wrath of God on the cross for all who would believe. They would speak of his resurrection from the dead. And finally, they would speak about the need to turn from their sin and their, and, and their unbelief. They would need to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. He could not just simply be added to their list of little g-gods. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. That was the jailer's one great hope. But not only that, we see next, the gospel was the hope for every member of his household. The gospel was the hope for every member of the household. When the jailer asked what he must do to be saved, the answer was not just for him, but for his whole household. It's, kind of, it's instructive to see that Paul wanted the jailer to see that this gospel was not only for him, but for his family as well. He did the same thing with Lydia. These new believers needed to understand the importance of the Christian faith for families, not just for individuals. So with both Lydia and the jailer, Paul made it a point to share the word of the Lord with those who were in their households as well. The Christian faith is a personal thing. I mean, nobody else can believe for you or me. It's our faith. There is a, definitely a personal, individual aspect to that. We are each called to hear the gospel and respond in faith. But we also need to see that the Christian faith is a family thing as well. It affects really every aspect of our life, and family is a very important aspect of that. So as the members of the jailer's household heard the gospel, they also believed. And in these early morning hours, they were all baptized. Then with the family all together, the jailer washed the wounds that Paul and Silas had. They sat down together. They ate a meal. They had times of rejoicing and the way their whole lives had just been transformed. And just very, how would you ever plan something like this? The singing of Paul and Silas in prison had now spread to the jailer and his family. I'll bet they taught them some of the psalms and hymns that they had been singing. So we see here just a wonderful example of how responding to the gospel in faith brings about just a transformation of life. Well, next we see from Acts 16 that faith grants us the courage, the courage to stand for what is right in the face of evil behavior. That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did the very next morning. Look at verses 35 to 40. Now when day came... The chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these th words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So at some point, the jailer, Paul and Barnabas, returned to the prison. When daylight came, 
the chief magistrates had had a change of heart. It may very well be that because of the earthquake that took place, that got their attention. They were probably quite superstitious and probably took this as a sign that whoever these men worshipped was not happy with their arrest and what had taken place and their imprisonment. So they sent a policeman to tell Paul and Silas they were being released. You get the impression Jailer was really happy to hear this. I mean, obviously, he didn't want them to stay in jail. So he communicated the news to Paul and Silas. They were free to go in peace. Their response surprised him, I'm sure. Actually, I think it surprised a lot of people. Because instead of simply leaving like they were told to do, Paul uses this as an opportunity to rebuke the Philippian magistrates. Why would he do that? Well, I think there's two reasons. First is this. Paul was concerned about honoring the Lord because the word of God makes it clear that every civil magistrate is a minister of God whose job is to punish what is evil and reward what is good. So I believe that the first thing that explains why Paul was able to stand courageously against the civil magistrate is his desire to honor God. He knew in this situation he had the opportunity to speak truth to these magistrates. He had the opportunity to confront them with evil behavior. He didn't often have this opportunity, but this time he did, and he made good use of it. He did it in faith because he believed the word of God. He trusted the Lord would enable him to go against the people who had the power to do more physical harm to him, just like they had done the day before. But in faith, he went to them, or actually told them to come to him. I believe what Paul did is consistent with what he would write later in Romans 13 about civil government. I want to remind you what he said. I'm going to read for you verse, uh, Romans 13, 1 to 5. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. For if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So, question. <laughs> Was Paul being in subjection to the governing authorities when he said to the Philippian magistrates, no, we will not leave. I believe that the way many people interpret Romans 13, they would have to say Paul sinned when he did this. Instead, he and Silas should simply obey what the magistrate told them to do because the magistrates were ministers of God. I disagree with that. I think it's because... God ordained civil magistrates as ministers of God that Paul recognized he had an obligation before God to correct these men. What they did was wrong. 
In Romans 13, Paul says that as ministers of God, civil magistrates are to punish what is evil and praise what is good. When they get that backwards, they need to be told. When the magistrates call evil good and good evil, they need to be confronted with that. And they need to be replaced if they will not comply with what God has required of them. So I believe Paul was a wonderful example of courageous faith when he resisted the evil magistrates. He lays out specifically what they did wrong. First, they beat us in public. Two, they punished us without a trial. Third, they did not honor the rights we have as Roman citizens. Fourth, they threw us into prison. And fifth, they want, they want us to obey them and leave secretly as if none of that mattered. It mattered. It matters to God. Therefore, he says, we will not leave until they come to us personally and address these issues. That's courageous faith. We see at the end of verse 38 that when the magistrates heard this, they were afraid. Praise God. <laughs> they were afraid. When they heard they were Roman citizens, they knew this could end up very badly for them. So they come personally to Paul and Silas to appeal to them. They certainly acknowledge, because I'm sure Paul repeated these same accusations. I'm sure they acknowledged what Paul and Silas were saying was true. I would imagine they stumbled all over themselves, apologizing for their wicked behavior. And they begged Paul and Silas to leave. This satisfied Paul and Silas, so they left. I believe Paul did this to honor the Lord, not to get personal revenge. I think it's very likely that the psalms that he and Silas were singing in prison included prayers for justice, just like we saw in Psalm 140. So when God gave them the opportunity to press the issue, it was right and God-honoring for them to do that. But there's another reason for what Paul and Silas did, I think. Paul stood for what is right as a help to the church at Philippi. He did as to be a help to them. It had become probably pretty well known by that time that Paul and Silas were ministers of the gospel. Uh, I mean, the demon had been publicly cast out of the slave girl in the name of Jesus Christ. We know that Lydia and her household were believers. We know the jailer and his household had now believed, possibly the slave girl as well. Paul had great concern for the well-being of this young church. Establishing his and Silas's innocence before the authorities was important for the church. Paul did not want to encourage a precedent of treating disciples of Jesus Christ in harsh ways. So I believe that was another reason for his courageous faith to stand up before these chief magistrates. And we see that idea really kind of at least implied uh, in verse 40. It says, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. When they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and then departed. So they agreed to leave Philippi, but not before spending some time with the brethren who were gathered at Lydia's house. 
They spent time with them, I would think, encouraging them in the scriptures. Surely they spent time praying with them before they moved on. Now, everything in this passage that we've looked at all happened in the context of significant and painful trials. That was the context of everything that took place. And all the way through, we see Paul and Silas responding to their difficulties in faith. We see the Lord bringing forth fruit that went far beyond what anybody expected to happen. I mean, just so many encouragements in this verse for us when we find ourselves in really difficult times. Lord, we thank you for being the God who is the Lord of all. And I don't know if Paul and Silas had times of having to get their wits about them when they were sitting there in the dungeon, darkness, chained in stocks, bruises. I don't know what the process was in their mind to get them to actually focus on you. But sometimes we need a little time to kind of process and realize what the person has just said, what these people have just done. But then to take it to you in prayer and to trust you. Lord, I thank you for the example we have from these men. Help us, Lord, when we find ourselves in these very troubling kind of situations. Help us to be people who go to you in prayer. We don't always understand. Matter of fact, we hardly ever really understand why things are happening like they are. But help us to know that we can take all things to you in prayer. Lord, help us to use your word, even use psalms, for example, to kind of help us verbalize those prayers, to help take us from being honest about what's going on and how hard it is, but to then move us toward a real confidence in you to address the situation. (coughs) Lord, I just ask that you would help us to learn from this, these examples. Lord, I also ask that you would help us because there's a real focus here on the importance of faith in salvation. So as we, well, so close this prayer. Just want to make an make a, a, a an appeal to those who would not be Christians, who are not believers. Um, the jailer came to the place where he realized he needed to be saved. He understood his sin. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you understand that you really are a sinner and you need Christ, just like we all do. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I've sinned against you in so many ways. I've fallen short of what you require of me but I thank you for what Jesus Christ has done, and I want to receive Jesus Christ as the Savior of my life and the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that that decision,